Well, good morning, Community Lincoln Park. Uh, my name is Pastor John. I felt like I got a lot of hype this morning, which was great, and also uh, am obviously very excited about the survey. So uh, just plugging that one more time. Uh, we'll talk. You'll get an email from us. Can't wait to hear from you. Um, this morning, we're continuing the series. We're actually in week three of a series where we're asking, why church? Why church? It's kind of this big, messy question right now. Uh, why do we need church? If there's all these disappointments with the church, if all these things have gone wrong with the church, if these horrific abuses have taken place, is the church even worth it? Is the church even good? Is the church what God wants for us? Uh, if you're willing to ask that question with me, this morning I want to step into another theme. We talked last week about the image of God. This week I want to talk about the presence of God and the church. And as I talk about the presence of God, I want to invite you for a moment to just remember back to the first time you ever experienced the presence of God in your life? Do you have a memory that comes to mind of the first time you experienced the presence of God in your life? Uh, for some of us, maybe it was as a child, sort of sensing something bigger than yourself. Sometimes, uh, for a lot of people, they talk about a moment of suffering, a moment of sort of tragedy, uh, a death perhaps that took place in the family. Or for others of us, we were involved in some sort of church experience, and somehow, as we were growing up, we have this moment that happens where the presence of God becomes real. For me, uh, my moment took place at the age of 12. Uh, so I was young, but a little bit older. And I remember distinctly the first time I truly thought that I was experiencing the presence of God took place at a summer camp. I know it's very cliche, although I'm sure there's some of you who also went to summer camps. And at summer camp, you got away for the week. Uh, you were in this sort of fun environment. We were doing lots of games, but there was lots of teaching. You're part of this small group of friends who are kind of your age. You're talking about God the whole week. And I remember distinctly on the last night, you know, just to be clear, we'd been singing, we'd been doing teachings and all the rest. I hadn't really felt the presence of God through the whole week. But that last night, the age of 12, I distinctly remember as we're singing songs, uh, it wasn't wasn't overly emotional. It wasn't like I started crying or my body was doing anything weird. Instead, I was just standing there in this group of people, and suddenly I felt this very almost heavy, sort of sacred, but very personal sense that God was real, that God was there, that God was present to me in that moment. I realize it's kind of hard to describe. I'm sure if you were to try to talk about those first senses you had of God, it'd be hard for you to describe too. And that kind of leads me to the problem then when it comes to talking about the presence of God. Uh, I had this experience when I was 12. Again, if you had an experience, especially growing up as a child, uh, the challenge is that you kind of start to look back and wonder, was I just going crazy, right? Like, could we just have an honest conversation for a second? Like, was that weird what I just described? Was I, you know just like swept up into the feelings of it all? Was it summer camp highs? I mean, as you go back to your experience, was it just that sort of moment, that context? Was it all in my head? And as I've wondered this, surely you too have wondered this, I've noticed that the longer I've gone along in my life, the more, more educated, the more degrees, the more sort of adulty I've become, the, the less I sort of trust those moments of presence those mysterious, sacred moments where God arrived in my life. And so I've been pondering this. I actually have been looking into this, researching this, wrestling with this. I think the question that I would put before you, if we're going to talk about the presence of God, is why is it so hard to experience the presence of God? Have you ever wondered that? Like, why is it that if you had some experience as a child, 
that it's so hard to return to. It's so hard to find the presence of God. It's so hard to trust even those moments that you had. Um, in order to answer this question, I, I want to encourage you by showing you a depressing graph. Uh, you're welcome. You didn't know you were coming in to receive a graph this morning. This actually is the Pew Research Center. This is religion in the United States for the last 100 years. And let me summarize a bunch of information very succinctly. The orange graph is Protestant Christianity in the U.S., and it's going down, right? That's all you need to know. The, the line is going down. Religion in America over the last 100 years has been drastically shrinking. That red line that you see going up, that's the unaffiliated, what the sociologists like to call the religious nuns. You see that especially in the last 30, 40 years, it's been going up. And as you ponder this, all, all that I want to draw your attention to for a moment before we get into the Bible is that there could actually be a reason, an explanation for why it's so hard for you and for me to experience the presence of God in our lives. In fact, this graph has generated tons of debate uh, within academic circles around this thing they call the secularization thesis. Can you say that with me? Secularization thesis. You just got smarter. Don't you feel it? Like you're you have a new fun word to bring up at the next dinner party you're at. Uh, secularization theory, thesis is essentially asking, why is religion going down in the United States, but why does it still seem, uh, comparable charts show, that a sense of spirituality is still up? In fact, I saw the Wall Street Journal literally this morning posted on Instagram, that's where I get all my news uh, these days, don't know about you, uh, that the Gen Z has reported an uptick in openness to spirituality, right? Like spirituality is still here, but religion is going down. Here's one commentator that I find really persuasive. We're nerding out just a bit. Don't worry, we're going to get into this sermon in just a second, but here's my last two slides for you. Uh, this is a guy named Charles Taylor. He's a Canadian so he's got uh, just a little bit of distance from us here in the United States. He's a philosopher, a sociologist. He wrote this really big book called The Secular Age that won a bunch of awards. And he essentially gives three reasons why he thinks religion is going down. And to just stay focused with us, it, why it's so hard to experience the presence of God right now if you live in the city. His argument essentially is that we have moved as a culture away from transcendence, uh, if you go back three, four, five hundred years ago, culture was kind of open to God. It was interested in the things of God. Everybody wondered what God was doing. If, if there was sickness, you'd say, well, surely this is a disease from God, or maybe this is a disease that could be healed by God. If the crops failed, right, a couple hundred years ago, you'd say, well, uh, well God is looking down on us. He, he's not showing his favor. We need God to help us grow the crops. Or if a plague swept through, everyone would start to pray, God, rescue us. Now, Charles Taylor observes, we've moved from transcendence to what he calls an imminent frame. We live very much within the world we inhabit. It's mostly about what we can see, touch, feel, and control. And there's a lot of good things that have happened in the last hundred years because we've moved from transcendence to imminence. Like uh, now when crops start dying, we ask very scientific questions about how to sort of revise them. If you get sick, you go to a doctor and you hope that there's some sort of chemical solution that can help treat your malady instead of just praying about it. And of course, if a plague comes, as it did, uh, we find vaccines. We rally together globally and we do our best to stop it, right? This is what Charles Taylor says. We've moved from transcendence down to imminence. Now, if we've moved from transcendence to imminence, the second effect of that is that we've moved from identities that are shaped by our communities 
identities where essentially if you wanted to know what to do with your life 500 years ago, you'd look to your father, you'd look to your mother, you'd do whatever your family trade was, you'd just take what they gave you and move along. Uh, now, all of our identities are inward or internal. In fact, Charles Taylor says this results in us living in an age of authenticity. Could you say that one with me? Just to keep, keep it lively here. Age of authenticity. Ready? Age of authenticity. It's great. We're learning tons of stuff. I love it. Uh, this is just for me. Thank you for indulging me. Um, age of authenticity has resulted, though, uh, Charles Taylor points out, if we're living with this sense of personal experience, who am I? What do I want to do? How do I feel about any of this? Charles Taylor says there is, there is a, a danger, though, a risk in this whole movement. And the risk is actually the also increasing result of anxiety across our culture. Uh, all the stats, all the mental health studies, if I were to pull up a similar graph to last hundred years, would show highly increased senses of depression, highly increased reporting of anxiety, uh, suicide is up, especially over the last 30 years. I mean, there's all kinds of striking statistics to back up Charles Taylor's analysis of this moment. Now, uh, these are heavy theories. I want to give you just a picture of what this means for us in the city. Uh, here's the picture. Uh, we did a training about a year ago with some of our leaders in our community, and we put together this sort of simple image to capture what it means to live in a secular age in the city of Chicago. Instead of God being up there, like all of us just expect to find God out in the world, instead we've just kind of got the city, right? We're like looking to the city for everything from fun to success to our jobs to status to a good night out to you know, entertainment, nature, hopes, dreams. It's all sort of there in the city, but our identities are very insular. It's kind of this closed circle. Charles Taylor calls it the buffered self. And as a result, you have all these forces kind of crashing in on us, like all these tensions at work, all these relationships pulling us in different directions. Some of us have dysfunctional families that we're trying to navigate. Some of us have uh, just different competing desires, like we both want to be successful, but we also want to be lazy. Uh, we want to have fun, but then we also want to get to work. And as you're navigating all of this, instead of God being there, you're kind of left to be in here, to look inside yourself and hope you can find something to give you purpose or direction. This is true, the reason why I take you through that whole exercise is that I just want to make the case to you, it is harder now to experience the presence of God than it even would have been a hundred years ago. In fact, Charles Taylor is making the case that there are forces in our culture that are resisting God's presence from coming into your life. Uh, two of the easiest examples of that, I know for me personally, would simply be the busyness that our culture tells me I need to engage if I'm going to be successful, and my iPhone, which my culture also tells me I need in order to survive, right? Between busyness and iPhones, how do any of us have time to do what I was doing as a 12-year-old, which was to stop and just notice that sacred, heavy presence of God there in the room with me? Now, if this is, if this is all the case, uh, I think there's actually a really fun conversation to have this morning about what the Bible, what the scriptures have to say about the presence of God and to see if the Bible can make any sense of this moment we're in. Sometimes it feels so overwhelming to be living in a secular city that you feel like, man, maybe this whole Christianity thing is just gonna 
go away. You know, like maybe those 12-year-old experiences were hopes. Maybe, like who knows really if God is even real, right? Like I just feel so overwhelmed. I'm not sure where to turn. Well, thankfully, in these moments, this is where the Word of God can speak. So I'm going to take you on this fast tour. Uh, We did this last week. Sort of a 30,000 feet view of where the presence of God moves in the Bible. We're going to draw out a few themes to help guide us through this moment that we find ourselves in. You ready? So here we go. We're going to first go back to the garden. I have a fun little icon. You're going to see it. It'll keep you, it'll keep you engaged. We got this. Uh, so if you return with me to the, to the garden in the book of Genesis, what you find incredibly is that when God created humanity, God actually created a home for God's self. I find this kind of startling. I never really pictured Eden this way. But we're told God makes a garden and he names it. This is Eden. And then God places humanity, places first Adam and then Eve, there in the garden to be with the presence of God. Um, There's some really fun scholarship, I won't fully bore you with it at this point, uh, about how this image of Eden that the Bible's describing in the book of Genesis actually sort of pictures the temple itself, the later temple, which we're going to talk about. And so the idea is God is actually in planting a garden, made a home for himself that he wants to dwell in with humanity. And so we find there's this active relationship where God looks forward to resting, to dwelling with human beings all the way from the very beginning. Uh, I think the first insight we receive here in our current cultural moment is the insistence of the Bible that you were actually created to live in the presence of God. You were created for this. You need God's presence in order for your life to fully be what your life was intended for. Uh, My favorite example of this came about three years ago at a Bon Iver concert. Uh, Jen and I had a chance to go to the Quad Cities. If you know Bon Iver's music, it's very ethereal and experiential, and it's not Christian at all, uh, but it's very moving, it's powerful. And Jen and I are at this concert in the Quad Cities of all places, love the Quad Cities, in this grungy place called the Rust Belt. You know, you never know where God's presence is going to show up. It was right there at the Rust Belt. Uh, and Bon Iver is playing this song, and it's one of his most moving songs. And I'm standing there surrounded by the haze that is alcohol and marijuana at a Bon Iver concert, very appropriate uh, substances that go together. But this man in front of me, as Bon Iver starts to sing, just does this. Just puts his arms up. And I was so struck standing behind him because I was like, is this man worshiping? Like, he's worshiping right now. I've seen that before. That's a church move, you know? Like, we've, we've got that down at the church. And yet you could tell this guy didn't know what he was even worshiping. But he was so moved by this moment that his hands had to go up. It was like his whole existence was created to worship something, even if he couldn't quite figure out in this moment what it was. The Bible says this is exactly how you were created to live. And yet, very quickly, right here in the garden, we discover almost immediately that something has gone wrong. Uh, so in the following chapter, Adam and Eve sin. They eat this fruit from the tree. They're deceived, but they also rebel. They turn their back on God. And there's this very interesting moment where presence is kind of shattered, right? We're told the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. It's interesting that the Bible suggests to us that it's not so much that God has pushed us out, 
has turned us away from his presence as much as we are inclined in our sinfulness and shame to hide or to try to escape or turn away from the presence of God. Um, I, I think, actually, this is really helpful for us even today as we try to understand the secular moment that Charles Taylor is talking about. Uh, there's a sense that really today the surprise of like, man, we've really created a life for ourselves where we could almost live without God and be totally fine. Uh, there's a commentator named Abraham Heschel who worked in the 1960s, was just a really thoughtful Jewish philosopher. Um, and Heschel makes the argument, he says, you know, the secular moment we live in actually is just the working out of Genesis 3 in our lives today. It, it's actually us doing everything we can to build a life for ourselves where we can hide from the presence of God. In fact, cities, I think for as much as I love cities, and I really do love being here in Chicago, you can know that a city is sort of built to allow you to almost get by without ever having to think about or encounter God, right? If this is true, it kind of highlights how we've gotten very sophisticated as a culture and as a society at escaping from the presence of God. And yet, here's Heschel's real encouragement in one of my favorite books of his. Uh, the title of it is God in Search of Man. God in Search of Humanity. Abraham Heschel highlights that from the very beginning, if it's true, we're very good and talented at hiding from the presence of God. The encouragement of Genesis 3 is that God actually goes looking for us, right? God doesn't just let us hide. Instead, God comes looking for Adam and Eve. In fact, his very next question in Genesis 3-9 is, where are you? God is looking for us. And so, if this is true, uh, there's this whole sweep. There's this drama that takes place in the scriptures. We could take way more time, probably a whole series to unpack each of these, but let me run you through some of the beauty of how God searches for us, what God is doing to disrupt us. The first thing God does is he calls a people Israel, and he tells them to build him a tabernacle. I've got another fun icon for you up on the screen. This is from Exodus. Uh, the people of Israel Build me a holy sanctuary so that I can live among them. I must build, you must build this tabernacle and its furnishings according to the pattern I will show you. God essentially tents up with his people. <laughs> he, he puts a tent down. He says, look, I want to be among you, and yet there is something even beautiful and interesting about the tent itself that says, this is sort of temporary. <laughs> you know, we're like trying to make this work. We're feeling things out. And in feeling things out, there are some very intentional ways God intends to be with his people, but he's going to require, if you've ever stumbled into the book of Leviticus, he's going to require a lot of different uh, signposts, needs. He kind of builds this whole system of engaging God's presence. And it's because the people are still caught in the tension of their desire to hide, to flee, to turn their back on God. And so God is now seeking them out. He's come to prepare this way that they can engage him. And yet, they're going to have to intentionally prepare themselves if they're going to enter into the presence of God. Uh, this is going to keep going. Uh, we'll jump ahead to temple here. A few hundred years later, as the tabernacle has been moving with Israel, as God has been moving forward this plan to dwell among his people, God eventually is going to commission Solomon to build a place, a permanent dwelling place. Uh, the temple was this beautiful, sweeping house where God's presence could dwell among the people. And we find this really climactic moment in the Old Testament 
when Solomon is commissioning the temple. And we're told that this thick cloud of the presence of God fills the temple and assures all the people, like, God is here. God can be accessed here. That sacred presence you've been looking for, you can approach it. You can enter in. You can be prepared and come with your offering. Yet, as this temple is established, the challenge is uh, that there's still, still not quite full access, and God is still somewhat constrained here, right? Like, the temple is just one place that God can be found. And so, as Israel kind of lives this out and are slowly journeying further and further away from God as these prophets are coming in and trying to draw the people back and back and back to God's presence, you sense dramatically, like if you ever want a sweeping drama, just go read through the Old Testament and stay with the story as it's building out. Uh, You've hit this moment where you're genuinely left to wonder, what are we going to do about the presence of God? Like this, this doesn't seem like it's fully working yet. The people have turned their back Um, They're not really committed. They're not really engaged. Enemies are sweeping in. Where is God going to dwell if this temple plan doesn't work? Incredibly, beautifully. You've probably seen this passage before, but every time as you follow the story, it can hit you again. Uh, We have the New Testament pages open with this proclamation. The Gospel of John is going to say this. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Uh, The word made his dwelling, quite literally in the Greek, is the word tabernacle. Uh, The word has tabernacled. The word has pitched his tent. The word has committed to dwell among us. In fact, now it's not just a place, it's not just a building. God himself has come in the flesh, and as you could only imagine from this story that's been building, that person is full of glory. Uh, The early church could not get over this claim by John that when you see Jesus, you see all of the glory of God. It's worth going back and reading through your Gospels again to just ponder, what does it mean that where Jesus walks The presence, the fullness of God is moving through the earth. Yet, here's what's crazy. Jesus is the the pinnacle of this story. Jesus is the pinnacle of God's presence coming down to earth. But Jesus is not the end. In fact, you almost start to walk down the other side of the mountain, and you discover beautifully that Jesus says, you know how God's presence is now going to flow out into the world? God is going to send God's spirit to you to my followers. So this is in the Gospel of John. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. The Spirit of truth, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and he will come to them and make our home with them. Do you hear Eden flowing forward? Like Eden is going to be restored through the Spirit, we find in Acts chapter 2. This moment comes on the day of Pentecost when the disciples are together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from the heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak after tongues as the Spirit enabled them. 
Um, this is weird. This is trippy. Uh, this is non-secular. This doesn't feel comfortable in our moments today where God is kind of pushed out of the equation. And yet, as Abraham Heschel highlights, God still comes. God is relentlessly coming. God is seeking. God intends to fill each of his followers, uh, to give them the fullness of the glory, the fullness of the presence that Jesus came to reveal. Yet, here's the last, the, the last point, and if I've been making any case here, it's maybe been subtle. I now want to make it explicit. Uh, the reason that God's presence has been coming, has been flowing through Jesus and through the Spirit is not just so that you, on your own, can be filled with the Spirit of God or experience the presence of God. Instead, we're told the reason God's presence was coming was so that the church, the church who are the community of followers of Jesus who are proclaiming as a, him as king, the church can now become the new dwelling place of God. So let me give you two verses. Again, you see the flow, the beauty, the building sweep of the Bible. Uh, Paul is going to say this in his letter to 2 Corinthians. We are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them. I will be their God and they will be my people. He's going to say it another way in the letter to the Ephesians. He's going to say, we are carefully joined together in him, becoming a holy temple for the Lord. Through him, you Gentiles are also being made part of the dwelling where God lives by his spirit. So here's the provocative point. I made it last week. This whole series is kind of making this general argument. I'm going to throw this up. God's presence is not about us, or sorry, God's presence is about us, not just about you. Here's the challenge as we go back to this image uh, that I started with. In the city, there is this temptation. In fact, there's this pressure. All these forces are working to make you think your life is just about you. I think the temptation when it comes to the presence of God is to try to do your best to set up a system where God's presence can somehow be accessed on your own when you're comfortable, when it's convenient, when it kind of is working with your schedule. You know, maybe if there's just a few mindfulness exercises that could open up a little bit of presence, you know, so you could just get that nice little feeling whenever you need it. And I get it, right? Like, I live in this world with you. <laughs> I feel all of the same draws that surely the spiritual life is just about a couple of disciplines, a couple of habits, where maybe if I just, you know, pray a tight 15 minutes in the morning, I can get that little quick God hit to keep me going for the day. And instead, I think the challenge this morning that I want to leave you with is that that's not actually what God's presence is intended for. Instead, God's presence is intended for the church, to fill the church, uh, to empower the church, to actually be encountered here in the church, and then to send us out into the world. Now, hear me well, because I'll get emails otherwise, and I know, it's fine. You can send me emails whenever you want. Uh, I'm not saying that God's presence can't be encountered on your own. Not at all. In fact, one of my favorite things to do is to get away, is to be silent, to be quiet in solitude, and I have very rich encounters with the presence of God. That's great. I don't think, though, that God's presence is intended for you to be experienced on your own. Instead, what you have here in the church is not a building, is not a temple, but is actually this container for God's presence to show up week after week after week. Let me draw your attention to this. I don't know if you've ever pondered why we are doing church 
the way that we are doing, literally this morning as you come in. But uh, we create a space, a place, a regular place to return to over and over again, much like the tabernacle, much like the temple of old. And here within this grungy music hall, love it, uh, with Malor banners on our windows and with uh, different alcohols being promoted all over, it's great. Uh, here in this place, a team gathers every Sunday and we start to create sort of signs, uh, indicators that something holy, something sacred is actually happening here. Then we have this moment to start every service where we invite you to pause from whatever the flow of your life has been, whatever's been driving you, whatever pressures are flowing, whatever you know, stressors are filling your mind, and we instead lift your eyes up with music. We actually take time to sing every week because we're just trying to open up space in your heart to pause and to notice and to see the God who maybe has been here this whole time and that you just haven't noticed. We then move to this table where every week we receive this bread and this juice. Now, I know some of you notice this, but for the longest time, because of COVID, we had just the little cups, and the cups are great. You know, you got to peel them back. It's nice. It's personal. You kind of take it. But here's my problem with the cups. The little personal cups sort of tell you that communion is just a you and Jesus moment, right? Like it's Jesus is just for you, and like take your cup and go and have a nice moment with Jesus. Instead, we wanted to give you visually every week this sign that reminds you God's presence, God's fullness of glory in Jesus Christ is actually right here in this whole space. And if you're distracted, if you're forgetting, uh, if, if you're busy, if you're afraid, you can just kind of look at this table again and remember, remember that God's presence has come in Jesus. Now the point of God's presence, which we're going to get to next week, is not just to be this endless kumbaya where we come and we sing in Lincoln Hall forever and ever. Instead, God's presence does have a purpose and is going to send you back out to the world. But I think if we're answering this question, why church? Some of the temptation is to try to make spirituality something you can have on your own. And my encouragement to you this morning is that the reason why the church exists is because you're not actually intended to just encounter God's presence on your own. Instead, God's presence was always something that God intended to dwell here, be shared among a people of God. So there's this final verse in Hebrews as an encouragement to you, and I do think coming out of COVID, this is a important word. The author of Hebrews says, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching. The church is a Sunday rhythm, not because Sunday is super special, not because Lincoln Hall is this magical place, but it's a rhythm that's intended to draw you close so that we can fill you, we can, we can remind you that that presence of God is right here. It's been waiting for you this whole time, and it wants to send you back out to the world. Let's pray together. Um, Lord, I know as we ponder your presence that there are some here who have experienced you before, who've tasted your presence, and yet for some, it's probably been a long time uh, since they've even encountered. There's been a lot of forces that have resisted your presence filling their lives. 
So Lord, this morning, I, I pray as we walk through this huge sweep, I pray that your presence, even now, would, would just begin to tingle their senses, that the church here gathered together as we draw attention to these beautiful signs would start to remind them of your presence, that presence they first encountered. Lord, I also know there are some here who are probably very hungry for your presence. They need your presence. They need their, your presence out in their lives. They need your presence among their relationships, their friendships, their coworkers, their bosses, their jobs. Lord, we know that all who are here need your presence out in the city, wherever they find themselves. And so God, I pray, not only this Sunday, but every Sunday would be a filling up again. That even as we're about to enter into worship and come gather around your table, that you would remind us, remind us with these signs that your presence is here with us even now and wants to send us out. We lift this up to you in Jesus' name. Amen.